right, and there's an adult who's going to make sure they get to where they're going. Thank you. Well, good morning, and good to see you. And if we haven't met, my name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here. That was Jake Patton, who was leading us in worship, another one of our pastors. Glad to see you here. And uh, what we're doing during Advent, these four Sundays before Christmas, we're looking at passages that help us think about, and I'll use the theological term here, the incarnation, the doctrine of God becoming a man. Jake alluded to that as he was praying. So we've been in the Old Testament the last couple of Sundays. We're going to be in the New Testament, this one and next. And uh, the passage I want to look at is from Luke chapter 1. If you're here and don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. And I'm really just going to zero in on one verse, and really just one part of one verse, Uh, but you can look at that in the bulletin. It's interesting that, on the one hand, technology has exploded lately in a way that that it never has before at a pace that it never has before, and we love it, and we eat it, and we use it and uh, build our lives around it. But there's also, I think, maybe in some ways as a response to that, there's a lot of return to old ways. You notice this? Like, how many more people you know are beekeepers now? The Haybigs are about to join, and that'll be some future illustrations, I'm I'm sure, in the sermon. Uh, Calligraphy. Hand lettering. Hand printing. Um... You know, uh, whereas in the mid-20th century, it was all about, like, freeze-dried coffee or Sanka. You know, now it's, like, just just agonizing over getting brewed coffee or poured coffee just right. So return to old ways. And uh, I I, want to put in a plug for what we might call an old way that most Christians don't know is even one of our old ways. And it's this song that we're about to study. It was called by earlier Christians the the Benedictus or the, the, the Benedictus. And it comes from the first word, blessed. It's, it, here's, here's the background. Um, this is from the beginning of Luke. And it's interesting that the Gospel of Luke, that's the third book of the New Testament, after just some preliminary verses, kind of an introduction, it doesn't start with Joseph or Mary or Jesus or John the Baptist. It starts with an older married couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. And it starts off by saying that they were really godly people and, and loved the Lord and, and walked in His ways. But Elizabeth was infertile. And, and that can be devastating to uh, women in all cultures and all generations. But in, in first century Judaism, you would feel it acutely. And they just can't have a baby. And they're visited. Zechariah has a vision of an angel. He's a priest and he's working and he's at the temple and he sees an angel and the angel tells him that your wife is going to have a baby. Your wife is going to have a son. And Zechariah, you know, he's a, he's a believing man, but he's skeptical about it because like, you know, the way our, our minds work, he doesn't know how that's going to happen. And because he doubts, the angel says, you're not going, going to be able to talk, like physically speak, until this baby is born. And so Elizabeth conceives... And the baby comes to term, and the baby is born, and it's a son, and and, um, and they name him John. His wife, Elizabeth, says his name is to be John, and that wasn't a family name, and so all the people that were there turned to the dad, and he, write, he can't speak. He writes on a tablet, his name is John, 
and then he can talk. And what pours out of him is this passage, this song. And it's really amazing how Scripture works because on the one hand, these are his words. These are Zechariah's words as a man, but the Holy Spirit gives him these words. The Holy Spirit is just all over Luke 1 and 2. The Holy Spirit is all over what we call the Christmas passages. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, this is what pours out. I want to read the whole song. Uh, This is a song that Christians used to sing a lot more. It used to be more in worship. People knew it by heart. They had tunes for it. It was in liturgy. We've kind of, at least a lot of us have let that go. Maybe you need to do something about that, write something for us. But this song is the pouring out of a man who hasn't talked for nine months, and it's just full of the things that God is all about. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 67. And his father, and that means John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our, to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, and now let us hear you. Would you let us, would you give us by faith the ability to see your son, and in seeing him to see you, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. A couple of years ago, I read a book, it's really the first time I've ever read a book about North Korea. I think North Korea is fascinating. Um, I know hardly anything about it, and in some ways that's the point. Is It's arguably the most closed country of its size left in the world. And uh, The name of the book is Nothing to Envy, Ordinary Lives in North Korea by Barbara Dim, uh, uh, Dimmick. Here's how the book ends. She uh, just takes you through sort of the lives of ordinary North Koreans, and at the end she gives some acknowledgments of, of people who helped her understand the country more and, and taught her about it. And she refers to a man who was there who provided some of the photographs in the book. And uh, he was a German geographer who took some of the photos in the book. And here's what, this is the end of her book. She says, inside uh, the city, I can't remember which one, this German geographer also noted the unusually large number of people squatting in a position that is almost emblematic of North Korea, knees bent up to the chest, balancing on the balls of the feet. 
And the man says, in other places in the world, people are always doing something, but here they were just sitting. It is a North Korean phenomenon that many have observed. For lack of chairs or benches, the people sit for hours on their haunches along the side of roads, in parks, in the market. They stare straight ahead as though they're waiting for a tram, maybe, or a passing car, a friend or a relative. Maybe they're waiting for nothing in particular, just waiting for something to change. The people who go to North Korea see this, that men and women will just sit in this position for hours. All right, this song... I don't know why this this makes me teary. Uh, This song that pours out of Zechariah under the power of the Holy Spirit says that this sunrise is going to burst on people sitting in darkness. Now, this geographer saw people during the day, but the picture of people like this for hours doing nothing. In Zechariah's song, that's a metaphor for our condition. Of what we're, I'm not even going to explain that. That's the picture of what we're like. Whether we know we're in darkness or not. And there's this other metaphor. Uh, the Bible is full of metaphors. I don't know if you saw the quote on the front of the bulletin. That's, in some ways, that was a dangerous thing for God to do, if I can put it that way, because a metaphor doesn't come along and say, I mean, one, two, three, four, five. It's a metaphor. The metaphors that are used of the Messiah are all through the Bible. He is a branch. He is a vine. He's a door. He's a shepherd. He's a lamb. He's a lion. Now, some of you may have heard most or all of those metaphors for the Messiah before, but this is one that we don't talk about a lot, and it's beautiful. It's the metaphor that the Messiah is the sunrise. Now, again, I I don't want to just explain it till it loses all its beauty, but I I just want to reflect on a couple of things of why it would be appropriate when Zechariah, when his, his mouth is open and he sings this song, that under the power of the Holy Spirit to liken the Messiah to the sunrise. And he talks about his own son. He says, like, you, son, you're going to be a forerunner of the Lord. So this one who's coming, he's the Lord. But then after that, the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So here's the two things I want to look at. Number one, the sunrise is still the sun. S-U-N. I know this is cutting-edge information that you got at church this morning. The sunrise is still the sun. And the sunrise means a new day. The sunrise is still the sun, same sun. The sunrise means a new day. Uh, The sunrise is still the sun. Think about this. And again, I'm not trying to insult anybody's intelligence, but just let me get this out there. When the sun comes up, it's not a new luminary. It's the sun that's always been the sun. The sun that the Mesopotamians saw and the Egyptians and the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans is the same sun that's shining through that window right now. It's the same sun, right? Not a new one. 
It's a new experience of the Son we've always had, right? Now, I, I want you to look again at verse 78. It says that because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now, that verb that we translate visit is a really special verb because there's other Greek verbs you can use for like when people visit each other. But this verb is used to depict when God visits people, either in judgment or in salvation, when He visits them. And it actually is in the song twice. Look at the first part of the song. When His mouth is open, verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed his people. And it's interesting to hear where that kind of language comes up in the Bible. The greatest act of salvation before the Messiah came. The greatest act of salvation and rescue in the Old Testament. What would it be? It's the Exodus. When God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And when God comes to Moses, tells him what he's going to do, and then Moses and Aaron come to the Israelites and tell them what God is about to do, Here's what it says in Exodus 4. The people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and they're not rescued yet, but He's visiting them. That the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that He had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. God is He's visiting us. He's going to rescue us. Um, there's another appearance of this verb in Luke. It's amazing. Um, Jesus has grown up. He's a man. He's begun his ministry. And he comes into a village called Nain. And there's a funeral procession. And Luke gives you the backstory of the funeral procession. Um, it's a woman who's a widow. So her husband has died, which makes her vulnerable. And now her son has died. So she's totally vulnerable unless she has relatives with means. And it's the funeral procession of the dead son. And Jesus comes up to this woman and says, don't cry. Don't weep. And then he touches what we would call the coffin, which strictly speaking, that's against Israelite law. And the young man comes back to life. And he's restored to his mom. And see, the thing about Luke is, Luke wrote his gospel, checking with all the eyewitnesses. And so the story he got was that the crowd shouted two things. The first thing they shouted was, uh, a prophet has appeared. Other prophets in the Old Testament, like Elijah, they could do stuff like that. This is a real prophet because that guy was dead and now he's alive. But the other thing people shouted was, God has visited his people. I, I don't... Maybe I don't know who that man is, but here's what we know. God is coming near right now. Now, that verb is special. It's saying that this one that John the Baptist is going to get everybody ready for, he's not just a prophet. He's not just a special teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. But when he comes, the sunrise, this is God. The same God that's always been. God is visiting us. 
but this is a new experience. Like, like it's the sun that's always been the sun, but when you experience the sunrise, it's a new experience of it. Think about this. We sing this in our Christmas songs. Uh, a Sunday or two ago, we sang O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We sang it in Lessons and Carols last week. One of the stanzas of that song, it's a little bit more obscure, says, O come, O come, great Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height, uh, in ancient times once gave the law in cloud and majesty and awe. Rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. Now what's that saying? It's saying the God who was on Mount Sinai, the God who terrified everybody that saw that and experienced that, we want Him to come to us as Emmanuel. And source of joy and trembling, and that sounds like last week's passage. This same God needs to come to us. The same God He's always been. Um... Let me be theological. The Son of God who became a man is equal in power and glory to the Father and the Holy Spirit. When that baby was in the manger, in his humanity, he's a real little baby in a manger. He has to be wrapped up so he doesn't lose his body heat. And he's Yahweh. A new experience, to say the least. Of Yahweh, but equal in power and glory. The same, the church fathers would say, the same in substance as the Father in the Holy Spirit. He has just as much Godness as the Father. Uh, man, uh, what, where, where do we go with that? Well, a couple of thoughts. One, one is, you know, one way that the sunrise is different than, let's say, high noon in the middle of the summer, is that you can look at the sunrise. Well, you've done that. Sunsets too, but you've looked at the sunrise. On the one hand, there's places in the Old Testament where, like Moses said this, God, I want to see you. And how's the story go? Does God say, sure. God says, if you see my face, you'll die. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock and cover it, and I'll let you see my back. But what did Jesus say? He who has seen me... What's the rest of it? He who has seen me has seen the Father. Like You can look right at Jesus. But when you look right at Jesus, you're seeing God. When you see Jesus get so angry that the people have set up a market where the Gentiles are supposed to be allowed to stand and pray in the temple. And it just hacks him off so bad that he throws tables over and he overturns money and he uses a cord that he made of leather straps to drive the animals and the people out of the temple and doesn't like run behind him going, I'm sorry and we'll make amends after this is all over. He just does it. That's God. And when people are trying to bring their children to Jesus, and whether it's the crowd or whether it's the the disciples going, don't bother the teacher with little kids. And he says, let little children come to me. 
For such, to such is the kingdom of God. That's God saying that. And, and I would say this too. When, when we appeal to you, whether it's to do this the first time or the 100,000th time, when we appeal to you, turn to Jesus. He's not physically here on earth anymore, but in your heart, by faith, to turn to Him. We're not saying, turn to the greatest elevated teacher of all human religious experience. We're saying, turn to one who is man and turn to one who is God. Because as a sinner, as a messed up sinner, you can look right at Him and not be destroyed, but He's fully God. The new experience of our God who's always been God. Second thing, uh, the sunrise means a new day. Again, I know that you know that. But think about this. Think about the way we measure time. There's sort of official time, and there, there's the way in real life we actually do time and experience time. For instance, in 2015, officially summer started on June 21st, right? That was the summer solstice. Technically, in our time... And in our seasons, that's when summer started. But by June 21st, how have we been living life? School has been out for weeks. Kids have been swimming. Uh, Kids have been at camp. That, like, our summer, actually, the way we live life, started weeks before summer started. Think about this. For Zechariah, a new day started at what we call 6 p.m. In Jewish time-keeping, 6 p.m. Uh, for us, a new day starts when? At midnight, right after midnight, officially. But when does a new day in your experience actually feel like a new day? And it's at sunrise. You know, uh, so some of you experience insomnia, and the, the, the weirdness of insomnia is that you can be in your bed and you can be wearing what you want and have the kind of bedding that you want and you can have the temperature set the way you want it and it's just a torture chamber. You can't get sleepy and you, especially if you live in a home with others, you can't really get up and do stuff so you're just trapped. And it's really great when the sun finally comes up. Because now, even if you're exhausted, now you can do stuff. But, like, it's a new day. Or if you have a nightmare. Have you ever had a nightmare where you woke up and you thought, it can't be that easy? I had a bad dream this morning. I don't know if it was in anticipation of saying this. I had a bad dream this morning. And just the feeling of, <gasps> man, I'm glad that's not true. And there's the light. I had a real powerful experience of uh, the, the, the relief of a new day about a month and a half ago. My son John and my daughter Betsy and I went camping with some friends up at uh, Black Balsam Knob up in North Carolina, pretty high up, and uh, went with some friends. Long story short, John set up his own tent, and Betsy and I are in the, a tent together. She's 10 years old. And set up the tent the way we'd always set up the tent, but just very windy, very cold, and just one of those deals where, like, the, the wall of the tent is banged. There's just no way to get used to it unless somebody, like, injected you with narcotics or something. So, 
So we're lying there, and I can just I can tell I'm not going to get to sleep, and I'm trying. I'm hoping she's falling asleep. So about midnight, I went, Betsy. She went, Yeah. I said, Do you want to go sleep in the car? And she said, Yes. And I said, All right, get your pillow and your sleeping bag. We're, we're just we're wearing tons of layers. She's hat in in the sleeping bag. It's 28 degrees. So there was about maybe 150 yards from the campsite to the car through these dense woods. And I just have like a little flashlight on my, on my cap. So long story short, in that little stretch of woods, we got lost. <laughs> L- let's review. Ten-year-old girl, midnight, 28. And so I can see the panic rising in um, Betsy, and, and I'm not letting her see the panic rising in me. And, and so we came up on a little fire ring There's no fire in it. So I knew people had camped there. I knew we weren't that far away. And I said, we're betting here right now. And Betsy faced the music, puts down pillow and a sleeping bag. And we just lie there for the longest six hours ever, ever. And the relief when somehow we fell asleep for a few minutes and we woke up and, and there was light. And I told my wife that the, the two big takeaways for me were just get a gigantic flashlight <laughs> and, and never go camping, really. <laughs> do, I'm kidding, do go camping. But the, just the relief of hearing, like they, the campsite already woken up, it's not far away, we walked right to it. But man, like new day. I want you to think about this. On the one hand, as, as a local church, as downtown Prez, our denomination, we love thinking about continuity. Continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When, uh, when Taylor's dad, Miles, prayed about his grandson's baptism, he talked about the covenant. And Zechariah's song talks about the covenant. Like We love thinking about the fact that The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is our God. The way God saved David is the way He saves us. We celebrate continuity. That Abraham put the sign of the covenant on his children, so we put the sign of the covenant on our our children. Continuity. And, not but, and we celebrate discontinuity. Hebrews, New Testament book, Hebrews chapter 8 says that because of the new covenant, the old, and this is the word it uses, is obsolete. Right, I'm going I'm to nudge on something here. And I nudge on Presbyterians all the time. But large parts of the Christian tradition continue to use the language of priests, an altar. There are no more altars. The people of God do not have priests, plural, anymore because there is one definitive great high priest. One definitive finished sacrifice. And our vocabulary needs to reflect that. But let me nudge on us. 
I don't want to aim the application outside the room. Think about how often we live like Old Covenant people. See, if you lived in the Old Covenant, the work of a priest is never done. There's the next burnt offering. There's the next peace offering. There's the next preparation for the Day of Atonement. There's the next feast. But the work of the priesthood was never, ever done. We live that way. I mean, this past week, I guarantee you that people in this room who believe in Jesus, believe in everything we're talking about, have felt like, you know what, such and such happened. I think God is punishing me. Or I think God's curse is on me. Or honestly, like, I don't know if I'm going to heaven or not. When you turn to the great high priest and say, save me, or let me use another metaphor, when you touch the definitive Lamb of God, you don't have to agonize over it. Did I touch him in the right place? Did I apply enough pressure? Was I in the right frame of mind when I touched him? When you touch God's Lamb and God's Lamb is sacrificed, it's over. It is over. You cannot be in Christ and be cursed by God. Because all the curse fell on Him and He absorbed it. He drank it and He said, it's finished and there is no more curse for our sins. Do you believe that? Don't live like you're still in the old. The sun rose. And it's not that the old day was bad. There's a great deal about the old day that we still feel continuity with. But we live in the new day. The old covenant, obsolete. And honestly, I think that takes a lifetime to get into your bones. Because I lapse back to the old all the time. Let me, um, let me end with this. I, long story short, six years ago, I won a trip to Europe. Ridiculous. Won it online. A thing said, would you like the opportunity to win this trip? Brian Habig, fill out my email address. Click, sent, promptly forgot about it. Won a trip to Europe. And so, um, and it was just for me, so I went, went by myself. When, when I was, the great thing about flying across the Atlantic on most trips is leaving around supper time. I just think that's awesome. Like, you, you, like, you eat supper on the plane, and the plane kind of goes to sleep and goes dark. And so, I, and I didn't have a watch or anything. And I remember just at one point, just kind of dozing in and out. And I was looking out the window. It's dark. I have no idea where we were on the trajectory. And all of a sudden, I saw this little light. And I just stared at it and thought, what is that thing? Was that an aircraft or what? And it was the sun. It was the sun. I remember this sentence actually forming in my mind. The sun is rising over Europe. And it meant that all this stuff, I mean, the flight was, this was true, the flight, but all this stuff that I did not earn 
and I don't deserve, but it's been given to me for free, is about to just start hitting me. And you know what we celebrate at Advent is that we live in between Advents. The sun rose. And you know what? The sun is going to rise again. For some, it will be a sun of judgment. Please don't let that be you. Please don't stand before the one true God in your own merit. But for those who turn to Him and say, Save me. Cleanse me. Rescue me. Every good, wonderful, rich, undeserved, lavish thing is going to just come at you when the sun rises again. Because of the tender mercies of our God, the sunrise visited us from on high. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord God, for sending your your own Son, your one and only Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for shining upon our darkness and into our darkness, for entering our darkness and yet never becoming dark yourself. Pray that we would live as if we are ones who live in a new day, not the old. That we'll live as ones who've been rescued by one who is God himself. That you drive these things deep down in our hearts. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.